Recording live from the Hoban Law Group here in Denver, Colorado, I'm your host, Eric Singular. Welcome to the Hoban Minute. I'm here today with president and founder of the Hoban Law Group, Mr. Bob Hoban, and Hoban Law Group senior attorney, Mr. David Wonderlook. And David, you are also the head of the corporate practice area here at the Hoban Law Group, so it is quite a pleasure to be here with you today. Thank you. It's great to be here. Now, you have quite a, a tenured list of accomplishments here in the cannabis space. I believe you're celebrating your 14th year as an attorney in the cannabis space. Give us a little background, if you would, a little color for the conversation on how you got in to the, the cannabis industry legal sector. Well, that's a good question. I'm from Northern California, so uh, cannabis has always been a part of my culture. Um, but uh, I was here uh, going to law school at DU Law School in the uh, mid-2000s, and that was right when the brick-and-mortar medical dispensary model started to uh, develop in Denver. And I watched it happen right in front of my eyes, um, thinking to myself that it might present an opportunity to be a lawyer in the space later um, after I graduated. Uh, I did a couple other different jobs, um, worked at county government for a long time, but uh, eventually I had an opportunity to make a transition to private practice, and that opportunity was in the cannabis space, so I jumped all over it. Um, that was five years ago, and uh, very happy to be doing it, and it's just uh, simpatico for my interests and um, passions. So so let's let's talk a little bit about that, uh, entering into the cannabis space. What are, uh, what are some examples of some of the first types of projects you started to work on uh, when you started to practice cannabis law, so to speak? Well, that's a good question. Uh, there is a lot of need for lawyers in cannabis law to do lots of different things. So um, as a lawyer who was willing to do cannabis law, I, I got to do lots of different stuff. So I think the first project I ever did was a merger uh, and acquisition uh, with your firm. Um, back in 2017. Yeah. Mr. Craig Small was on the other side of that deal. Um, I had some regulatory compliance defense cases, uh, lots of advice, uh, for people raising money and, uh, really just the whole, the whole gamut of, uh, cannabis work, um, litigation, corporate and transactions. So, so let me get this straight. So you left working in the county, in a county attorney's office, a county government, and then went to a cannabis, uh, law firm, correct? Yeah, that's right. So, uh, what were the what did the county people say when they knew that that was your plan? Because you know, I think it's maybe a little more accepted now than it was before. But uh, what 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 was the what was the sentiment? The the sentiment was tolerance, but there was a lot of smirking. Uh, one of my main clients at the county was the sheriff, uh, and so Sheriff Jeff Schrader was very supportive. He liked me, and he was happy to see my career progress. But uh, I'm not sure if he fully uh, encouraged my business. <laughs> so you sit in an interesting spot here in the, the corporate practice area at the Hoban Law Group. And I know, I know you're always on the phone. You're a busy guy, David. And I got to wonder, uh, with all the conversations that you're privy to, every the, uh, the perspective that you have kind of here in 2021 on the cannabis industry, I'm interested in the trends that have started to, you started to see just as a, as a result of talking to a lot of people. I know we've talked a lot, Bob, about industry consolidation, both as a result of uh, the pandemic, but also as a result of the fact that the industry is starting to mature. And with where you're sitting uh, in a position where you are working with a lot of mergers and acquisitions and entity formation and just different corporate uh, cannabis law 
areas, what kind of trends are you starting to see? I'm seeing uh, a lot of entry into the cannabis space by people who uh, came from other business concerns. So what you might consider to be more sophisticated investors, uh, people who bring uh, business to business services are starting to be really interested in the cannabis space. So I'm getting a lot of pitches from people that are trying to deploy ERP programs to cannabis businesses. That's an enterprise resource program um, that helps cannabis businesses or any business, you know, deploy all of their resources effectively. There's a lot of opportunity for cannabis businesses to uh, achieve some additional efficiencies from where they operate currently. You see that differentiation in the marketplace, even within the states. But because the market is so fragmented nationally, there hasn't been um, a lot of real capital to deploy that level of sophistication to business operations. Um, people are starting to plan for five or 10 years from now, eventual federal legalization. How do we really scale up this business and, and maximize the profitability of it? And so that's a trend that I've been seeing, especially in the last few months working here at the Hoban Law Group. Um, people are really interested in those opportunities. Uh, there are still um, smaller operators that are able to operate in the space profitably. And, um, you know, they're always looking for an exit. Some of them are more serious about it than others. Some of them really just like the job. Um, but the bigger money coming into the space is definitely a trend. Well, as Eric points out, we've talked a lot about uh, the year of consolidation, so to speak. There is a lot of uh, activity, uh, especially when you compare it to what happened in 2020. Right. Uh, I don't know if this was your perspective in 2020, but it seemed like at the beginning of COVID, so many operators and so many clients within this industry, it was almost as if they got punched in the stomach. There was just this collective just gasp for air. And then I wouldn't say people disappeared, but they almost stopped moving forward for a little while. Frankly, that was probably the case in many industries, not just our industry. So then compared to last year, this year, we started to see major M&A transactions, or at least reported um, in publications uh, pertinent to the industry, beginning in January and February, billion-dollar deals and the like. And I think we've seen a lot of activity. Would you agree that it's a trend of a consolidation that's indicative of where the industry is? Or is it just when you compare it to how dead last year was, it seems that way? I think there is a trend of consolidation. Yeah, I think that's fair to say. Um you know, the end of 2019 was an interesting year for cannabis because of the volatility in the hemp marketplace. You had a kind of confluence of factors as COVID started. So not only had many hemp businesses fallen on their faces because they hadn't planned for um, a volatile hemp marketplace, um, then you had COVID disrupting supply chains and disrupting regulatory issues and all the things that came along with the COVID pandemic. Um, so yeah, a lot of people ground to the halt in the marijuana space. It was almost a shot in the arm for a lot of businesses because sales went through the roof and stayed there. Um, so, you know, you had sales in the beginning of COVID that were, uh, you know, as high as a business might expect to do on a 420 weekend, for example, and, and they just stayed high all year. And, and some of these businesses have leveled up through that process, whether, um, implementing, you know, process improvements or, Otherwise, um, I think that the resurgence of M&A activity into 2021 is pent-up demand, but also it's just a recovery of the space, right? 2021 was tumultuous. Um, a lot of the public company stocks uh, really deflated. Um, those public companies that were able to recover from that have you know, recovered their ability to make acquisitions with stock, uh, and that's driving a lot of the activity. 
Before we depart from the topic of mergers and acquisitions, you know, one of the big headlines here recently has been the formation of the biggest cannabis company in the world through the Tilray and Afria merger. Um, that has happened pretty recently. And I'm interested, just as you kind of watched that deal develop, is there any insights that we can gain from seeing these two big Canadian companies come together? I have a hard time forecasting exactly what that means for the industry. What I, what I do think it means kind of reading the tea leaves is that there are big moneyed concerns that are trying to prepare for a world where they can leverage their clout to compete on a larger scale. Um, when those barriers start coming down internationally or even intranationally in the U.S., uh, you're going to see uh, a flurry of activity from international corporations and from MSOs in the U.S. really trying to expand their territory and lock it down from a competitive perspective as fast as possible. So having a bigger company and more funding and more resources allows them to do that more effectively. Yeah, I, it's hard to predict, but uh, it seems to me that calling it the largest cannabis company in the world is, is while that might be accurate technically based on the measurements, uh, it, it is certainly in air quotes, but uh, the question is, what, is it, what does it do? I mean, we've seen so many of these Canadian companies that were really well-funded call themselves large, publicly traded cannabis companies. They were. They are. But what does that mean? Do they own dispensaries? Do they own product lines? Do they own massive cultivation facilities? We've seen those facilities being liquidated by many of these large publicly traded Canadian companies. Do they want to get into the industrial hemp side of the business? Is hemp really indicative of the cannabis industry or is that more of an agricultural and a wellness and a, and a, and a potential medicinal play versus cannabis? You know, and, and a lot of this comes to light when you think about it. Cannabis, of course, is, is, the, is the plant, the genus. Uh, when we think about what things you can do with that plant, it really begs the question of, do you really need a, a large-scale cannabis company or do you need a variety of companies that do very specific elements of the cannabis company very well? Uh, multi-state operators, they make no bones about what they do. They go and they aggregate dispensaries and they cultivate uh, and they process material and, 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 and manufacture edibles and, and things of that nature, and they sell them. But when you're Canopy Growth or Tilray or, or, or something like that, the ambition, particularly with the funding, is to go out and try to be everything cannabis. That recipe hasn't worked before. Maybe, just maybe, it works in a post-prohibitionist environment when the Biden administration presumably legalizes cannabis. Do, do you think that that makes the, the relevance greater of being a cannabis company? Or do you think that some of the lessons we've seen say that bigger is not always better? I think it's the latter through and through. I mean, the, you know, you can't be everything to everybody. If a business doesn't specialize, it doesn't necessarily succeed. You know, I see the model of acquisition without um, a lot of thought on a smaller scale. Uh, and these are companies that are preparing themselves um, to be acquired by a bigger company by growing their balance sheets. So they don't really care if they're profitable as long as they have a balance sheet and they have revenue coming in um, that makes them an acquisition target for a bigger company. Now, when you get to the scale of the Tilrays of the world or the Canopy Growth or the Aurora, um, there is no bigger company to buy them out. I mean, maybe they're one of the, you know, Unilevers of the world comes in and picks it up. Or, you know, you saw the recent news about Uber wanting to participate in the delivery marketplace. I mean, these are opportunities for companies to um, reach the next level of capitalism, so to speak. But once you get to that, you know, multi-billion dollar valuation publicly traded company, there is not someone who's going to come in and buy you out because your balance sheet looks profitable. Uh, those investors are simply too sophisticated, even in a post-prohibition environment, I think. 
And, and plus, I, I think the wisdom early in the days of these publicly traded companies was there's no, only so much proverbial real estate in the cannabis space. And they attempted, as you point out, to aggregate that, to, to, to add as many assets to their, to their books as possible with the idea that somebody else from the outside is not going to understand it as well as they do and not have even a fraction of those assets. Well, the game's changed. It's changed in, in many ways. Um, and assets, being asset rich without the ability to produce revenue, that's led so many of these companies to sort of ruin the hopes and dreams of investors. Um, that's the, that's the, the way it goes, uh, for better or for worse, but, but it also is sort of heightens the idea that this is global. Now, the amount of real estate, the amount of assets available in this industry, in this space are increasing almost daily as jurisdiction after jurisdiction, after jurisdiction legalizes cannabis and implements some sort of commercial framework. So the idea that you could own, uh, as much of the proverbial market or real estate within the industry as possible, um, it's still a notion. It was never necessarily accurate before. Uh, it's certainly not accurate now. So revenue and uh, just smart business tactics matter. And as you point out, the, if you don't have any of those things, the potential buyers on that scale, on potential billions of dollars of transactions, yeah. they're not going to go for it. Yeah, I would say, you know, the concept of assets to have assets is like you said, Bob, it, it's, it spreads someone so thin that they can't operate effectively. You know, at the, at the end of the day, these companies are making, um, you know, pharmaceutical products, consumer goods, products, uh, consumable products, you know, uh, recreational intoxicants, whatever you want to call it, but they have to thoughtfully produce a product that people will buy and gathering a bunch of assets that kind of touch that area without, figuring out how it fits your vertical doesn't really lead to a cohesive picture of a business. Yeah. I, I really like the phrase you use the next level of capitalism. Cause that does just feel like what the industry is trying to accomplish. And there's these, these glimmers of hope everywhere, whether it's the safe banking act and the potential for companies here in uh, the United States to, to do an initial public offering and start to raise, as you've always characterized it, institutional level investment, um, you know, it's certainly an interesting topic, and, and it does really raise the question uh, of what it's going to take to get that large investors into the equation. But, you know, you think about it, too. In the early days, when there was investment money coming in, how closely were people really looking at the books, or was it just the hype? You know, we've talked about uh, the correlation to some degree of the dot-com bubble, crazy evaluations, and not really uh, really looking at it from this more critical lens that we have now. And I think, David, you absolutely bring to the table just years of corporate uh, legal expertise. I know you also wrote an uh an article recently, I'm going to butcher the, the Latin word, but I believe fructus industrialis, something of this nature. And uh, my understanding is it is when plants are being grown on a property, do those plants, if the property was to get, uh, to, you know, the person who owned the property wasn't able to pay rent, what, how do you characterize those plants? Is it part of the property? Is, is it personal property? So give us a little, a little background on this article and why it's an important topic to be thinking about in the realm of cannabis. Yeah, absolutely. So I've seen this uh, a number of times in my practice where uh, a cannabis client, whether that's a marijuana grower or a hemp grower, uh, is leasing their cultivation facility, whether that's a indoor cultivation or a farm uh, outdoor, it doesn't make a difference for this principle. Um, there's an old principle of law, centuries old, that has to do with a farmer who doesn't own their land. Um, because the farmer works every year to make the crop, 
the crop belongs to the farmer um, that's severed from the land itself. Now that's different from, you know, fructus naturalis or fructus naturalis, um, which would be like mining claims on the land, right? The farmer didn't develop the gold ore under the surface of the land that owns that's owned by the person who owns the land. Um, well, that's a complicated topic, but the, the growing of annual crops is what we're talking about here. Marijuana grows from seed. It makes one harvest cycle, um, assuming that you don't control the light and then it dies, right? Having done what it came to do, which is reproduce the, Farmer grows that every year. They cut it down. They sell it. If they lose the possession of the land midstream, there is a law that says a farmer gets to go back to the uh, to the farm and continue to cultivate his or her crops uh, until harvest, and then sell the fruits of their labor, the fructus industrialis. Now that would apply to cannabis, but for cannabis's prohibition. So we have a lot of you know complicating factors. They're going to be different from state to state. Because cannabis um, or marijuana is illegal at a federal level, you have state laws that say you must have possession of a licensed premises in order to grow the cannabis. Um, If the farmer loses possession, all of a sudden they violate state law about their growing marijuana and they don't get to go back and keep growing it and take it to harvest because they could even lose their license in that process. Um, you know, when you take fructus industrialis, I think there's definitely an argument that it would protect a hemp farmer who got evicted. I've seen a lot of, uh, kind of screwy hemp, uh, farm leases where a farmer isn't supposed to pay until the harvest or the landlord gets a portion of profits or whatever. I mean, there's a bunch of different ways that people have tried to do this. Um, sometimes those relationships fall apart means midstream and you have a landowner who wants to evict a hemp a farmer in July, two months before the harvest, because they got in a fight. Um, that hemp farmer might be able to go into a court and say, fructus industrialis applies, and I get to go back and cultivate my hemp and pay rent for the land until August, uh, September, October, as soon as I harvest it, and then sell my crops. Now, that's going to be a complicated lawsuit, because whatever that contract between the farmer and the landlord says is going to also you know, be at issue. But there are laws that apply to agricultural activities, and at the basis level, that's what we're doing here. Well, it's it's always great to dig up uh, Latin words, and, and and for those of our listeners that don't know this, the law is fraught with you know just a, a litany of these these Latin words that have pretty significant meanings in common law and have come down for centuries, as you point out. Um, and some are more relevant than others. And that is not uh, a term that I've heard before. And I did take four, four years of Latin in high school. Uh, so Mr. Azor, is, I'm sure you're rolling over in your grave somewhere out there. But uh, uh, it's, it's a fascinating concept. And it's an interesting thing to think about because you might think about, well, the regulations say if you lose your lease, to your point, then does that cannabis become the state's property or, or does it create a burden on the state to somehow dispose of or maintain the, the plant material? Because in theory, there's some sort of property right attached to it. There's a, a whole bunch of legal issues that flow from that topic. But, oh, yeah. uh, but uh, you know, at the end of the day, it, it, it's interesting. Um, I did want to bring something else out, but, and, and 
it was th- this idea of the 420 holiday, a- April 20th. And, and this is something that you and I talked a little bit about the other day yeah. uh, uh, in, on and around, or around 420. And, you know, it has to do with, you know, your upbringing in terms of where you were raised and, 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 and sort of the legend, the lore comes from that region. So tell us a little bit about it, um, because there is confusion about that. What does 420 exactly mean? I think we've got it straight now, but, but give us some color, if you will. I'd be happy to. So uh, earlier I mentioned that, you know, being from Northern California, I'm kind of steeped in cannabis culture. And um, I'm not just saying that, like I'm, I'm from uh, Mill Valley, California, which is in Marin County, um, the local legend. And I think if you go Google 420 history, it'll be borne out. Um, the, the 420 concept was created by a group of guys. Uh, maybe there's some girls that hung out with them too. And it was in the seventies, I think like 1971, 1973, something like that at, um, Redwood high school, I want to say, or San Rafael high school in San Rafael, which is one town over from where I grew up, uh, every day. They, uh, the group of people who called themselves the Waldos would meet at 4:20 PM to smoke weed. Um, and that's really all there is to it. <laughs> so something I asked you, I said, so I don't know. I grew up in New Jersey. So uh, Northern California, particularly further north than San Francisco, a little bit of a mystery to me. What, who makes up the Waldos? Are the Waldos this imposing group? Or well, how do you, how do you categorize the Waldos? You know, I would think that the Waldos are like any other kid from Northern California who uh, has a great upbringing and lives life outdoors and likes to enjoy nature. And and that includes enjoyment of the cannabis plant. I mean, I I think, um, there's a lot of tolerance for marijuana growing in use in Northern California. You know, you know about Humboldt, you know, about growing in Mendocino. Um, California was the first state to pass the magic, the medical cannabis initiative with prop Two Fifteen back in 1998. Um, and it's just, uh, it's part of the culture out there. Quite frankly, uh, when I was a teenager, there were some of my friend's parents that's openly use marijuana in front of us kids. Um, and I think the Wallows are just kind of a natural outgrowth of that. I don't know where the name Wallow came from. Maybe it's named after a poet. Uh, probably not. <laughs> I'd have to guess. Raises the question too, of where is Waldo? Cause you did make the point that they do like to be outside and it, you know, there's a lot of stories up there about, about Humboldt County as well. Uh, but before we sign off, I got to ask you, cause you, you, you bring up the old Latin words just, you know, because, because we're at a law firm and, and, you know, we're a couple of great legal minds. What's your favorite precedent? What's your favorite legal your Latin term or legal precedent or just obscure thing in the law that you know, maybe it was back when you were at school or just something, you know, like this fructus industrialis where you just come upon it and you're like, what a, what a zany, cool legal thing that's out there that's maybe hundreds of years old? Well, I can I can jump on this, and and, and unfortunately, Eric, I, I wish on, on more thought I could come up with a favorite nuanced or esoteric concept that actually has Latin terminology. But one of my favorite things I learned, which to this day surprises the heck out of me, although I, I sort of professionalized this this element for a little bit, is the concept of adverse possession. So I won't go into a, a, the entirety of what that means, but it basically means that if somebody else goes onto your property, your real property, like land, and they use that property for a period of time, uh, and you know, I think the sort of statute or the the, the the historical use is about 17 years. So I come over and I use your property for 17 years. You live in New Jersey, but this property is in Colorado. And I sit on your property for 17 years and I make use of it. You know, maybe I put a little little porch out there, some chairs, I farm some beans, some corn, a little cannabis. 17 years later, I can go to court 
with that proof, if you never tried to kick me off, if it was open and notorious, all these other things, and I get your property, I get it from you. That's a crazy concept, right? Where does something like this come from? That was always interesting to me. Now, I made a career out of that for some of the early years of my career. I was involved with what, what's known as eminent domain and sort of the government taking property for public purposes. But the idea of adverse possession was always such a strange, strange concept to me. But at the end of the day, the reason for that, particularly in frontier America, as the, as the United States sort of became the United States and as settlers moved to the West, the idea was if you have property in Colorado and you're not using it, you're what they call under the law, sleeping on your rights. Who comes up with that stuff, by the way? Sleeping on your rights. I have property. I'm not using it, so I'm sleeping on my rights. That was, was anti-American. You're supposed to do something with your property. If you don't, somebody else can take it. So that's my favorite strange but you know, very, very common uh, legal concept. Uh, I got a Latin one for you. So if someone, uh, like a judge, uh, says something kind of conclusory without explaining what they mean or how they got there, the term for that is Ipsy Dixit. <laughs> and, uh, you know, you get to put it in italics because it's Latin. And someone who reads that will say, what does that mean? And they'll have to go look it up. And it means because you say so. <laughs> and, uh, you know, if you can bust that out on somebody, it's it's usually a pretty good situation for you. And also it's uh, just kind of fun. <laughs> <laughs> Ipsy Dixit. I, I, I love it. I love it. Well, guys, this has been this has been great. Thank you so much, David, for stopping by and sharing your expertise and, and some great terminology that we can all use. We're going to try to slip the Dipsy Dixit into some normal conversation here over the next couple of weeks. But uh, from all of us here at the Hoban Law Group and the Hoban Minute, thank you very much. Tune in next time. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Hoban Minute. If you have any ideas for episode topics or guests, we would like to hear from you. Reach out to us at media at hoban.law and stay tuned for more on the Hoban Minute.